Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. The reason I know you'll prevail is because so many others have done it before you. You're likely to be world-class at whatever you obsess over. And most important, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. They somehow already know what you truly want to become. Welcome to Pixels and Properties, the only platform for busy, high-caliber tech professionals seeking financial transformation through real estate ventures. Subscribe to our complimentary weekly newsletter through the show notes to receive deep dives, expert insights, and resources to accelerate your investment journey without buying yourself another job. Ready to build wealth on your terms? Let's get started. All right, everybody, we have Ian Cruz with us today. He is a CPA by day and has a multifamily and rental experience throughout the Bay Area and Cincinnati. Um, so let's just get started, Ian. Uh, can you tell us, our audience, a little bit about your background? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's been great uh, getting to know you. And as we go to different real estate meetups and network with other investors, um, you've always been a, a great wealth of knowledge and excited to be on your podcast. Um, a little bit about myself, my name is Ian Cruz. I am a CPA by day and I work as a manager of finance at a venture capital firm. So more so in the financial reporting role. In the middle of February right now, we're going through our year-end audit and trying to wrap up our financial statements. Um, we invest in early stage tech startups. Uh, so very Bay Area, Silicon Valley, um, thing that we got going on. Um, but separately, I invest personally in real estate. As I mentioned, I work at a venture capital fund. I get to see a lot of cool and exciting stuff, including some really cool prop tech startups. Um, but I don't get to participate in the fund. I don't get to angel investor or, or invest in funds and stuff like that. So my own investment por portfolio in terms of my personal finance has been in scaling a real estate portfolio, which is a little bit more accessible and um, has allowed me to do things outside of accounting. While my strong suit, it is my, my background, my core competency outside of that. Uh, as you know, we've, we've dealt with so many different things in the world of real estate. Thanks for that. And so, you know, how did this all get started? How do you know that you wanted to get into real estate and, and really start this investing journey on your own? Yeah. So, I say that everyone's financial education begins when they are a child, um, whether it's conscious or subconscious, right? Uh, everyone's parents have different attitudes towards money. And even if they're not teaching you, hey, you should be saving or doing this or that or investing, um, their spending habits rub off on you. They're investing what they're doing rubs off on you. My parents born, you know, grew up in the Philippines and they did all the right things, right? They, they got their education, got, went to University of the Philippines, pursued higher education at, at good universities here uh, in the US. My dad went to, you know, University of Illinois in Stanford and my mom went to UCLA. So did, did the right things and, and went, uh, eventually found themselves in the Bay Area pursuing tech jobs, right? So, uh, Step one, step one was done there. Um, and then from there, learned what they were doing uh, with their money, right? So my parents separated when I was young. They have two very different, different types of personalities. Uh, my dad is more risk averse and my mom is 
way more uh, open to to risk, right? Entrepreneurial risk, investing risk, all that kind of stuff. So she actually quits her, you know, she was a software consultant and she stopped out in 2009 in the middle of that, you know, that recession um, and opened up a yoga studio and also was investing in real estate. Uh, so I watched her go through all the good and bad of both entrepreneurship and real estate investing. And there were, to be honest, there were a lot of mistakes made. Um, but on the flip side, as a, there, there was all some things seemed lucky, you know, down, down the road as well. Um, but with my personality, the mistakes stung pretty hard. <laughs> so while my mom could brush things off, I, I started reading books. How did this happen? You know, 2009 was, was obviously a tough time. So there were, there were, um, various things that went on. I, I was reading about what is negative amortization? What is a balloon on a loan? You know, so I'm reading all these terms that, you know, the average person doesn't have to read about or think about. And luckily on one of her, you know, on, on one of her properties, she got a loan modification that was a 40 year amortization on a loan with a balloon at the end of it. And I'm like, oh, we're not paying down any principal. But she held on to that property over here in the Bay Area for long enough to the point where I mean, if you hold on to property, if you buy real estate and wait, you're going to be you're going to be okay in in the long run, right? So, um, I think that there was an obsession basically brewing within me since since then, since 2009, since 2010. Um, but I was younger and too early to actually start doing anything, so I was just doing a lot of uh, education, self education, reading a lot of books. Um, you know, uh, yeah, reading, reading everything that I could. And then when I finally got to a point in my career where I had the personal finances, where I could start making moves, that's, that was, uh, when things started happening. And then the final trigger was joining a few investment communities where I got to meet like-minded people such as yourself, where the ball really starts to get rolling, right. Where you're, you're getting out of that analysis, uh, paralysis by analysis phase, and you're just doing, you're just taking action. Right, right. And I think it's really valuable, whether it be some negative experiences or even positive ones to have that exposure at a young age. Um, I think a lot of our audience might just be getting to this as adults and not really have to go through that or really see that firsthand. So I'm sure that's definitely helped in just the way that you look at your investing strategy and career. Now, can we go into a little bit about your portfolio? Why don't you tell us what your portfolio looks like and what projects you have upcoming? Yeah, so I have a portfolio of uh, over 30 units over in Cincinnati, Ohio, and the Bay Area. Um, primarily multifamily. As time has passed, I've really dabbled in, into a lot of everything. Um, I think a lot of folks like to ask, you know, how do I avoid shiny object syndrome? And for me, it was, okay, let me focus on one market and getting good at that, which was Cincinnati and the Bay Area. Um, and then let me focus on one type of investment, which is multifamily. But as you go ahead and you get reps and you meet people, you have the opportunity to work on a few different things as well. So for example, I was able to do a few single family homes like um, a subject to deal and an Airbnb deal, but that was because of the right partnerships and the right traction that was gained by building out a presence over in Cincinnati 
even though my focus personally is on multifamily. Um, but yeah, so I, over time, as you go ahead and get to network, learn to underwrite deals, um, you know, you'll, you'll have different opportunities that seem to fall into your plate. But my main focus is multifamily over in Cincinnati. And um, we are close, we just closed on eight units uh, very recently. And we are also uh, just in the market looking to scale into larger multifamily properties. Um, we have a strong team, we have strong, uh, property management on board. Um, but we're just looking for the right deal. And a lot of the numbers aren't penciling out these days. Speaking of the numbers, you know, I imagine as a finance guy, the numbers is what it's excite you. It's what you nerd out on. Can you talk to us a little bit about the metrics that you look at and, um, kind of the numbers that stick out to you and, and that you prioritize in your underwriting? Yeah. So I think, I think that's why I got into multifamily as I started my investment career, it just seemed like a big math problem. Right. And then when you actually start doing it, it's more than a math problem. It's like, Hey, there's a busted sewer line. What, what do I do? And I have to read about what that means. And you can look at all these spreadsheets, but actually talking to people and getting quotes is a whole different different story uh you know you realize a spreadsheet was was just nice a nice put together clean looking spreadsheet but the actual numbers are are a little bit different um in terms of numbers you know sometimes you have a lot of different numbers that overwhelm people it's like cash on cash irr gross income cap rate all these things start to um look like overwhelming and you're just looking for higher numbers right but what i try to tell people is to understand the relationship between those numbers and sometimes some of the inputs and variables that go into those numbers you can't accurately map out or you don't you don't have the crystal ball to map out so i'm just going to start off at the very top and go you know add a layer of complexity to each of these numbers so that you so that listeners can understand I mean, at its simplest, at its core, the simplest thing you can look at is rents, right? Like how much, how much is this rent, you know, how much is this property generating, right? Um, you can take things like the 1% rule, um, how much is the rent relative to the price of the property? This, this property is $100,000, it's generating $1,000 a month in rent, that hits the 1% rule, does that make it a good deal? Right. That's that's one level, just what it earns. The next level is expenses. Right. Well, it makes a big difference, obviously, if you have a new build versus a 1900 build where the capex and the repairs and maintenance are so much higher. Those expense ratios are going to be different. It, you know, and if you go out to Ohio or Texas where property taxes are higher or property management fee structures are a little bit different than self-managing in the Bay Area, you know, that rent, it, it's only one part of the equation. So you go ahead, layer in expenses, you find the relationship between rent and expenses, that's your net operating income. Cap rates is when you take that net operating income and you, um, it, it's relative to the purchase price. Who cares if you, I mean, if you're looking at a property that has an NOI of 200K versus a property with an NOI of 100K, um, you know, it's not like you're always going to pick the property that's generating 200K if it's 3X the price, right? So um, cap rate adds in a layer of, you know, 
relativity between net operating income, how the property is performing and what you're paying for it. Um, the ones that get, you know, more confusing for people are, you know, you have cap rates. Um, then you start to add in other layers, right? So what's the difference between cap rate and cash on cash? What's, what's the missing layer there? It's, it's your debt. It's your debt terms. Are you buying this thing all in cash? If you pay a hundred percent, uh, cash on a property, your cap rate is equal to your cash on cash, right? If you buy a property for 100K, 1% rule, you're going to get 12K of rent uh, over the year. 50% expense ratio, you get six. You get 6K of NOI over the year. That's a 6% cap rate. Um, to determine, let, let's say you don't use any debt, that's going to be a 6K return on your money. That's a 6% cash on cash. That's equal to the cap rate. Now, the difference now um, for cash on cash is the difference between the cap rate and the type of leverage, both in amount and percentage that you're getting, right? So you have a 6% cap rate, but let's say you're borrowing at 7%, it's going to be, there's going to be a difference there, right? So that, that, that added layer of um, debt terms is what differentiates cap rate from cash on cash. Now, the last piece that, um, the last metric that people like to throw out is IRR. So the last variable and input that goes into IRR that, that ties this all together is time, your value of time, right? If you're doing this over a three-year exit or a five-year exit or a 10-year exit, that's going to change things. If you're distributing fast and early, I mean, it's going to change um, your return for IRR as well. So IRR encompasses all the things I said above. And then it also includes the time, you know, if you're projecting a three-year refinance or anything like that, um, that's the, the final lever that they're adding into that, into that metric, right? And that's, that's why people look at it, um, because it includes everything, but it's also why it's the most difficult to map out, right? Because you need to know how far in advance you're going to exit, what your NOI is going to be, and also what the reversion cap rate is, which is basically what you're assuming the cap rate will be three years from now, five years from now. So IRR implicitly has the most assumptions in it. It's the most complicated metric, but that gives folks the most levers to pull. You can pull on projected rents. You can pull on decreasing expense ratios. You can pull on debt terms. You can pull on the refinance uh, that you're projecting on year three with X amount of, uh, you know, interest rate, and you can pull on how soon you can execute your business plan, which oftentimes doesn't exactly happen the way that, that you want it to, right? So um, that that goes from order of least level, high, uh, least complexity all the way to most complexity of the main metrics that people look at uh, in real estate investing. You clearly have a wealth of knowledge around the numbers and and the relationship between all those. <laughs> you made a good point about the IRR. You know, a lot of syndicators I see, they'll really stress the IRR, but it doesn't always tell the story of the assumptions they're making, right? Sometimes I would like to see more kind of tangible metrics like the cash on cash, what your NOI will be at exit. Um, but in any event, out of all those, what are the most important metrics in terms of screening a deal? Do you look at cap rate and say, pass on a deal if it's not a certain cap rate or cash on cash? How do you, how do you funnel through all the deals in your pipeline. Yeah. So what, what 
a lot of folks will do is they'll just try to compare the same metric to the same metric, right? Cap rate to cap rate um, or cash on cash to cash on cash or IRR of one deal to IRR of another deal. What I do is it's really tough to make things apples to apples, right? So I, I look at any, any of those metrics and I look at the inputs that they're putting into it, right? So IRR actually is probably the one that I look at the least. I think it's a good marketing one, but I look at it the least because it has the most inputs in it. I look at NOI, but then I, I immediately look at the, the layer above it, which is what's the expense ratio? Right. Oh, you say right. that your your NOI is is going to be this much. Well, what's your expense ratio? Okay. If you're going to make take it down the level to the more complex cash on cash. Okay. Let's look at your debt terms. Right. You're assuming that you can get it at this. You know, uh, with this debt and this interest only period and blah blah blah. So you know, I just look at the assumptions within it. And I, I if if I'm looking at hey, here's the cap rate on one deal versus, hey, here's the cap rate on another deal. Okay, well, let's see the expense ratio for each of them, right? And let's see if that makes sense. So it, it's really about looking at the numbers underneath the, the top line metrics. Um, I would say, if, if I had one quick, quick and easy way to look at things, I would just look at NOI, the business plan to increase the NOI, and then I would be looking at the assumptions, expense ratio, loss to lease, uh, rent rent growth assumptions i mean if they're projecting in this market if they're projecting like five percent rent growth per year it's it's probably not not going to happen um unless you're yeah i i I would say no (laughs) don't don't project for that so um yeah i'm i'm spending most of my time looking at the assumptions within underneath uh everything great great well that was a great explanation of the metrics you look at uh, I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, so, you know, here at Pickles and Properties, all three of us hosts uh, have a tech background, which has deeply influenced our uh, strategy and ability to to invest in real estate. So I'm curious, you know, with your experience in the VC world and in te- a tech career in general, how has that influenced your real estate career? And have you seen any crossover between the two? Yeah, I'd say... Um... I've seen crossover both from networking with both finance professionals and tech professionals. They both help, right? We, we seem to know many of the tech folks that are investing in real estate, and they're also tech folks that are creating these incredible companies like Fractional and Concrete and uh, companies that are trying to make investing in real estate more accessible. And those companies tend to attract a tribe, right? And then you start to meet all these people that are doing all these really cool things in real estate. So that's, that's part of the tech part of things. Um, in terms of finance, uh, it's, it's all similar, right? I mean, understanding, I mean, even just at its core, uh, how to read a spreadsheet and how to play around with, with numbers on the spreadsheet is one thing. Um, something that's helped me now as we get into more and more different type more and more different types of entity structures is understanding entity structures, right? Understanding all these different companies, different partnership types, uh, profit splits, things like that, because the venture capital space has its own uh, structure, which is very similar to a syndication, right? These are limited partnerships, 
uh, GPs get carried interest in real estate. They call that term promote. Um, so they, they run through these waterfalls to determine how much, you know, to allocate between limited partners and, and general partners and stuff like that. And then there will be multiple companies involved. You have uh, the fund, which will have consist of both the GP, the general partner, uh, who is the main person operating the deal, and the limited partnership group, which in the VC world is going to be a lot of institutional investors, pension funds, some high net worth individuals, but uh, you know, you're, you're going to have a, a certain pool of, of investors there. Uh, your GPs are your operators, so they create a separate entity that, that takes on, uh, that invests as a, as a GP. And they put 1% of the capital into the deal and they receive 20% of the returns. That's going to be the, the carried interest. Separately, you have to create a management company, which is typically going to be an LLC, which pays all the payroll, it pays the office expenses, and it's something that's based on committed capital. The fund is paying, let's say, 2% of committed capital towards the management company that runs all the back office of the company. Um, so as funds, you know, as we start to look at larger and larger properties, um, you know, real estate funds are going to have very similar structures. So being able to understand that kind of stuff and get to work in the weeds of it uh, definitely is is interesting and very translatable. It's just investing in a different different asset class. Right, right. And what I think that people don't understand as much, they think real estate is some mystical, you know, investing vehicle. How do I get into this? How do I get started? And then once you do, you realize, wait, there's a lot of crossover and similarities from corporate in general, but also specifically with tech. I think just how fast moving it is and you know creative you can get in that space. It there's definitely a lot of crossover into real estate. And so for for people working a corporate job now, what would you recommend to them who want to get started and also how you balance the two yeah great question balancing the two is the problem that i probably you and we i are always <laughs> dealing with we're, we're trying, trying to figure it out uh, i'd say that the people that we've met that do this and do this successfully are, are a certain type of personality um, we're a certain type of type a personality that enjoy our job um, and do do everything that we can in our W2 careers, but then also have something else in us to, to want to invest and, and do take on other things that, that are, you know, uh, outside of sitting around and watch, watching Netflix all day. Right. So um, I think that we're, we're a certain, we have a certain personality that gravitates towards wanting to meet others and, and learn and pick up new skills. Right. Uh, to all of those who are thinking about doing this, the the first thing I would do is, I mean, you're at, you're at the right place. Listening to this podcast is is one thing, right? There there are going to be a number of other podcasts like Best Ever, Bigger Pockets, and things like that um, that you can listen to and and books that you can read. I probably have a, a ton of books to recommend, uh, as I mentioned when I was in that analysis paralysis phase. Um, but the next step is really to just start doing or, or getting to know folks who are doing it and start to just learn by observing what they do. So you can, some people like to go the passive investing route, whether it be in syndications or joint ventures or things like that, where they're partnered with folks who are a little bit more experienced. 
some people like to go ahead and do things all on their own. Um, no partners or anything like that because they want full control, um, full ownership of the profits, but also the mistakes and the, and the headaches of everything that, that can or may, may, may go wrong. Um, for me personally, it was a combination of self-education, joining a um, few groups, as you know, going on a few real estate immersion field trips. And then for my first deal, I partnered with one partner with comp complementary with a complementary skill set. He's a realtor who's a fix and flipper over in the Bay Area. Um, he knows more about houses themselves while I know more about numbers. So I'm the financial guy and he's more of the guy that gives me guidance on everything that we need to do to turn our units. So um, finding the right people to potentially partner with if that is within your appetite. Um, and then also all this self-education. I mean, those are the two biggest things to get to, to allow you to get started. But you will be living a double life. You will be working, you know, at your job. I mean, your job is what allows you to stack the chips to be able to invest in the first place, especially if you're in tech, that it's your return on your time is not worth it to quit your job and try to try to make the same amount of money on cash flow, right? Or try to wholesale deals or things like that. Like, especially if you're in, in tech, it's that, that, uh, that source is, is priority number one, but you will be living a double life. There's really no, no way around it. Um, as I've scaled, I've started to get a lot better to build the team and build people and have people help me. Um, I have people in our local market that now I've partnered with quite a few. Um, I've had people that we've mentored that we know that we can really split the load and we have a rock star virtual assistant, which is it's just amazing right um it, it really amplifies your your bandwidth um to have other other members of your team be able to help you cool thanks for that um so let's talk about this virtual assistant a little bit i think people with corporate jobs they you know time is a huge asset and commodity and there's a finite amount of it what do you leverage your virtual assistant to do and what could you leverage a virtual assistant as you're getting started? You might not have a bunch of business processes or deals that you're working on. Are there things that you could delegate off as you're getting started to allow you to really focus on building your portfolio? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm not, there are some people that are really experts in building the right systems and processes with the virtual assistants. I'm, I'm always very amazed with that. Um, it does take a lot of time to onboard them and set them up with processes and things like that. What I say is the easiest thing to get uh, a VA started on for me personally is social media. Um, but that's up to people if they really even want a social media presence to begin with. But since I do, um, getting my VA involved in social media is when when I don't have as much time to to train her, she has a running list of things to do that kind of just keeps going and going. I have tons of footage from our field trip, our investors field trip to Cincinnati last year that she can just sort through. Um, I have at least done some pre-editing and things like that so she can go ahead and take it and run with it. So um, that that makes things easier to have some sort of recurring task that they can work on when they don't have things to work on. Um, but as far as the training goes, we use Notion and um, I've used Asana in the past as well, but right now I'm using Notion and there are recurring tasks 
And I also use Zapier to have automated, you know, you have these rules. Uh, I don't know if you've, you've used Zapier much, but uh, Zapier is an automation tool and I'm seeing all, all types of really cool stuff that people are doing to get off market deal flow and have automated follow up emails with potential sellers and, and things like that. I haven't quite got into that, that level yet, but um, I do have just rules in my inbox for whenever certain certain emails come through, for example, or some of our property uh, property statements, PM statements and things like that come through. They automatically get filed into certain folders and a reminder email gets sent out to um, our VA with the instructions on how to start doing the bookkeeping and things like that. And there are a number of routine bills that she has to go through and um, take care of the bookkeeping for, or sometimes allocate to different investors or things like that. So there's, there's a bunch of stuff that just gets automated. And then within Notion, she, she has her, her task list, right? So her task list will be a combination of bookkeeping, um, social media, uh, admin type account, uh, admin type uh, roles as well, calendaring, things like that. Um, she hops in on our weekly meetings with Elevate and, and uh, we, we obviously use things like Otter AI and things like that to get transcripts, but she's also on it to sort through whatever um, action items we need um, and also just to stay on top of it and know what's going on, right? So uh, she, she really knows all that's going on, helps us with the admin tasks. She's helped us with our Wix website, social media, video editing, transcribing videos, um, yeah, and and bookkeeping, right? So it's it's a number of tasks, um, but she, it definitely keeps her busy and she's doing a great job with it. So, you know, over the past, I think you've been investing for about five years now or so, what could would you do differently if you had to start over? And are there any really hard lessons that you learned and had to endure through through this journey? That's a great question. So in terms of what I would, any hard lessons that I would, uh, that I would do differently. Um, I feel like when you start, you're going to make a lot of mistakes and every mistake comes with a learning lesson. So nothing that I particularly regret. There have definitely been some headaches. It's, it's like, you can read every mistake, every book about every, you can read about every instance of, Hey, don't do this. Don't do that. But when you're under a time crunch, sometimes things happen. Right. So, um, I, I wouldn't say that I regret any, any mistake in particular because everyone provided a learning lesson. I'd say the biggest mistake is just not getting started because, uh, we would have been all a lot better off if we started three years earlier than we started. Right. So, um, there's that in terms of like a mistake, an example of a mistake. Um, one of the rules investing in the Midwest, uh, or in older properties, especially if they're over a hundred years old is to always get a sewer scope. Uh, it's something that I've been taught, uh, from, from various other investors and mentors. Um, I always have, I've walked away, I think from three properties due to the sewer scope. And, uh, currently there's one that we, you know, we're getting the, the sewer liner. So that was something that we were able to negotiate and remedy, but it is a huge deal to always get a sewer scope. 
um, on these older properties, right? Uh, there, you always want to check all the big ticket items, the electrical, the foundation, uh, and the sewer. So on this particular property, the reason why it slipped off our radar is because we got it because the last buyer backed out and they already had an inspection. So unlike in the Bay Area where an inspection is provided to you in Ohio, you're the one ordering your own inspection, doing your own diligence. So we got this property under contract um, after it fell out. We put in the cash offer. Uh, we weren't the highest offer and we we ended up getting it because we were cash and he probably knew what was wrong with the property and we accepted the previous inspection report uh, and somehow it just slipped my mind because if I was ordering it from scratch, I would have ordered the sewer scope as well. Um, so at first I almost let it slip, but I remembered afterwards uh, and we were able to find the uh, we were able to order a sewer scope and later walked away from the property as a result of it. From there, our property, which we had we had under contract for two fifteen, um, somebody who later became one of our partners, she actually got it under contract for two forty as an FHA buyer. So this is Bulbul, who is now a partner. At the time, I had no idea who she was. I had never met her or anything like that. Um, she is a 21 year old who works as a data analyst over in Cincinnati and wanted, you know, got caught the bug for real estate investing as well. And actually um, wanted to do her first house hack. And, you know, she's amazing for getting started that early. Right. So she got this property under contract and um, it's a 45 day close because it's the FHA purchase and on day 42, she posted it on Facebook to list uh, for, for, for rent, list one of the units because it was a duplex for rent. And we found it and we tipped her off on the sewer and she ended up walking away from it as well. And over the course of time, we had that, that shared experience. And over the course of time, we kept crossing paths. And then before you know it, we started talking a lot. And now she is one of our partners on our deal, uh, on, our, on our deals now. The lesson was to always remember to get the sewer scope um, and she learned that the hard way because she lost some some hard money costs earnest money costs because of that as well yeah there's also an inspiring and relatable story relatable story for people who are trying to get started right it's always lead with value always find a way to bring value and, and genuinely connect with people you never know who's going to end up being your partner um you mentioned uh, that you had done a cash offer. Now, what is the appropriate time to do cash offers? And can you just talk about some of the different risks and rewards for doing cash offers? And not necessarily just cash, but how you structure your offers. I think a lot of uh, new investors think that just the highest offer will get the property. But I know you've seen in many cases, there's so much more to it that goes into it than just purchase price. So can you talk about that a little? Yeah, the art of creating a competitive offer, right? So uh, especially in the residential space, we always strategize every offer that we put, that we write. And you want to know a little bit about your buyer and that will direct you on what levers you can pull to make your offer more competitive. Some some, and I would say probably most sellers are still looking for the highest offer price. 
but sometimes they need other other things as well, right? Um, you, you'll never know their personal situation if it opens itself up to seller financing or if they're trying the 1031 and they need a certain type of close. Um, cash offers are competitive, obviously, because they're, they should be guaranteed to close. Uh, there's no financing risk and they are quicker. So some sellers, they just want the certainty of close and you can get, if the seller is, if you're offering to the right seller, you can get a little bit of a discount offering cash, which is a lot more certain to close than, than a finance offer. There's, there's always appraisal risk, uh, right? So even in a, so in a hot market, uh, there was a little bit of appraisal risk in the Bay Area when things were super expensive, right? And people are offering 200, 300K over ask. But if they're, if they have their finance, well, everyone waives all their contingencies in the Bay Area. But, you know, if somebody has a financing contingency and then a property doesn't appraise, then, you know, that, that property has to go back on the market and then all of a sudden it's, it's stained, right? Either that or you have to renegotiate. So sometimes the seller will just say, hey, we want to go ahead and, and take the cash offer. That's as clean and as sure as it gets. As far as this property goes, we put it on fractional. So we had a group of investment partner, partners that were willing to fund the property in cash. And at the lower price point, part of our strategy for being competitive in an otherwise hot market was to offer cash on properties in that 250K and below range. Um, you know, there's a strategy of trying to get something with some equity or, or trying to buy it at, at maybe a little bit of a discount and then later trying to refinance out if, if that makes sense. But that was, that was the best way that we found we could get a property um, in a very competitive market at a lower price point because everyone's competing at, at that low price point. So that was why we went cash. Great. That, that makes a lot of sense. So, you know, you talked about it being a really hot market. What are some of the trends that you're seeing in the real estate market and in the markets that you operate in? And how do you see that evolving in this upcoming year? Yeah, there's, there's a little bit of divergence in what people are seeing between residential and commercial properties. Um, it's almost like the narrative is that commercial real estate is going to crash, um, particularly in the office and, and office space and things like that. But they think some of these apartments that are on floating rate bridge debt um, are going to struggle as well. We'll see how much inventory pops up as a result of that. Separately in the residential space, things are very, very tight because with high interest rates and people locked into their, their low interest rate mortgages, nobody wants to sell their property. Um, we are in a, actually a prime example of that. We are, you know, your, your move up buyer that needs more space. And what we're doing with our duplex is we're going to go ahead and rent out our site to travel nurses and go ahead and rent rent the house that would be a 10K mortgage to buy and rent it for 4,300. So um, it's really put everything frozen, right? Transactions are, it's, it's a transaction um, crash. It's a volume crash, not a price crash, right? In terms of residential real estate. In Cincinnati, Ohio in particular, that, that is one of the hottest markets out there. It's, it's one of the consistently ranked as one of the top in terms of home 
price growth. Not uh, yeah. So even even the purchase prices are going up quite a bit. And in general, in times like this, the Midwest is going to perform well. A lot of investors are still going over to the Midwest for to to chase cash flow. And Cincinnati has a strong fundamental profile, right? It has seven Fortune 500 companies, in, including Kroger and Procter and Gamble, Fifth Third National Bank, um, things like that. It, you know, renters make five times the. The median income is five times the median rent, so things are still, um, you know, people can afford the rent uh, there as well, and the prices are relatively well priced. So uh, there's no reason to see that type of competition slow down, and I don't see what would trigger like a real inventory spike unless we hit really hard times with consumer debt, where things things really get out of hand. Um, so in a market like Cincinnati, especially in the residential space, it's going to be tough. And right now it's very tough to be able to find those those small multifamily deals. Um, in terms of the large multifamily deals, sellers are just kind of stuck in 2021. So it's been there's been a little bit of cap rate expansion. But as, as you know, as we've underwritten deals together, the, the price that we're willing to pay at these interest rates are much different than the price that we would have been willing to pay at three or 4%. So it's, it's such a huge difference. Um, every 1% increase in, in your borrow rate is a 10% decrease in purchasing power, right? And, and rates went up at a very historically high rate in 2022, right? So it's tough to make the math, the math isn't mathing and it's, it's very tough to get the numbers to work. So uh, as you know, we've been just offering kind of low um, lately, but one of the pieces of feedback from one of my mentors is that you're actually doing brokers a favor because you need to set the line, set the seller's line of expectation. If, if, this, if this feedback is coming in consistently from consistent buyers, like the feedback just keeps coming and coming, you're setting the expectations for this to to happen in the future. I'm not saying it's going to be some massive crash in prices, but um, doesn't work. Deal doesn't work. Deal doesn't work at the, the price of, of the last few years. So we're, we're trying. It feels like we're knocking on a brick wall, but um, we're just consistently writing offers. And I think there will be some some opportunities uh, in, the, in the larger multifamily space in the year to come. And we need to be well capitalized and well in position to be the top buyer because it's not going to be some free for all where everyone is buying apartments, right? Like we need to be consistent in our actions today so that um, in the future, the right opportunity can seemingly fall into our lap, but we've been working on it for the last few years. Yes. The competition and just the seller buyer sentiment still has not lined up. I can totally agree with uh, where you're coming from on that. On a brighter night note though, what are you excited about this year? So I think I think I mentioned there may be some opportunities uh, later in the year. I have a good feeling about it. I don't I don't know that that's gonna happen. Uh, I think I head into 2023, so last year, with a right mindset where I said, I don't want like a door count goal. I don't want my goals to be, you can either be process or goal oriented. I don't want, I want it to be process oriented. So even if the deal that I want doesn't come, it's not like I need to close. 
I need to stick to my process, stick to my guns, stick to my networking, stick to my, my habits of underwriting any and every deal that I can, that I can do. So it was very, a very process oriented year. I feel like, knock on wood, I feel like we, we can start to get a little bit more goal oriented this year to close something large while maintaining the mindset of not forcing it just, just to say, Hey, I wrote on my, my board, I'm going to write, I'm going to close a hundred units this year. Right. So I have a strong feeling that, that something will come around. Um, and I, I guess I could say that that is a goal at this point. Um, in terms of things that I know that that's always the uncertain, right? So in terms of the things that I know that are going to happen, we have an existing portfolio that we are currently stabilizing. Um, of small multifamily properties. Uh, there's a property that we were rewiring the electrical on and that one is getting a ton of interest uh, right now in terms of leasing. Had to deal with a few bumps along the way, dealing with the IBI. Um, so I'm, I'm learning that on my own, um, but we're, we're almost across the finish line there and um, excited to get these properties stabilized. And separately, I'm hosting a field trip for investors that are interested in the Cincinnati market. Definitely hope you can come, Liam. Definitely uh, inviting our, our close network of friends or to any of the listeners who are interested, feel free to message me because it's a really cool trip where we'll get to network with a lot of great investors, property managers, brokers, um, and all the people that you're going to need to know if you're interested in investing in Cincinnati. Some of them are even non-residential. And then a lot of the residential investors as well. So if you're looking to build a team over in Cincinnati, I would definitely recommend reaching out to me and I, I can give you more information about that field trip that we have planned. Great. On that note as well, you definitely have a vibrant social media presence. How can people get a hold of you? How can people reach out? And what are some of the platforms that you're most active on? So the easiest to remember is my Instagram, which is at Cincy Cashflow. So go ahead and follow me on, on Instagram. You can also find me on LinkedIn or Facebook just by searching my name, um, Ian Cruz. And I'm sure Liam will post it in the show notes and I'd be happy to, to connect further. Great. Well, Ian, we really appreciate you coming on. I sure do hope our listeners had their pen and paper out because uh, the masterclass you put on about the numbers, I'm sure, will be valuable for people who are getting started. And uh, really appreciate your vulnerability and showing your learning lessons and really hoping for the best uh, for this upcoming year for you. So I appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me on and wishing you the best uh, right, this year as well. Take care.